Welcome to Growing Up Beverly Hills. I'm Stacy, And I'm David. We grew up together in Beverly Hills in the 1980s. Forget what you've seen in the movies or TV shows. We have the real stories about real people growing up in Beverly Hills. Here's a little known fact for you. There aren't any talking chihuahuas. <laughs> Beverly Hills folk drop a lot of names of people and places. We just can't help it. Don't worry, we'll explain it all at the end of the interview in the Beverly Hills Breakdown. Enjoy, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Hi, Stacy. Hi, David. We are back. Today, we have Charles Rosen on, or his friends call him Chuck. He graduated Beverly Hills High School in 1970. We had a great talk about what school was like in the 60s. We got to talking about politics and some of the historical events that he lived through before getting into his prolific writing career. Oh, what a career. He wrote two of my all-time favorite shows, The White Shadow and Northern Exposure. If you're not familiar with those shows, seek them out and watch them. (laughs) But he's best known for his work on the show Beverly Hills 90210. And he's also currently doing a podcast called The Beverly Hills 90210 Show. Check that out, too. He shares some of his 90210 stories with us, but so much more. Let's listen. So great. Let's listen to Chuck. Charles Rosen, thank you so much for coming on Growing Up Beverly Hills. Yep, yep. The the, the blessing and the curse. (laughs) Of Beverly Hills, yeah. Exactly. Thrilled to have you. First of all, do you like to go by Charles or Chuck? Well, my friends call me Chuck, so you feel free to do that. Uh, but my wife calls me Charles, so uh, it, both both are acceptable depending on my mood. All right. Well, I'm going to go with Chuck. So, how did your family first get to Beverly Hills? Well, we're, we my parents um, uh, had been here a long time. Uh, my mother was was actually a native, uh, born mm-hmm. in in 1917 or 1916 and my dad was born in 1915 he went to hollywood she went to hollywood high he went to la high he went to ucla she went to sc and his best friend at uh, ucla turned out to be my mother's older brother it was love at first sight and they were a real uh, wonderful couple and and had lots of friends and my father was a very prominent uh, pediatrician in, in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. Oh, wow. My parents built their own house in uh, Truesdale Estates. They were about the seventh house up there. Wow. And it was, a, it was a very interesting, fun place to grow up, frustrating place to grow up sometimes when you're stuck and other parents won't drive you up the hill to get home and you have to walk. Exactly. But at the same time, um, it was interesting because our next door neighbor was Groucho Marx. Oh, wow. So we oh. really did, uh, you know, fall into that. Well, there are a lot of celebrities in Beverly Hills. Well, I don't know. My, neighbor. <laughs> my neighbor's Groucho. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was he a friendly guy? <laughs> Um, yes, in the sense he, 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 well, yes and no, he was Groucho. So the Grouch part of it is there. When we moved in on a, our first weekend there, uh, you know, we were really excited. We had the pool in the backyard and my parents had the, what were the, the really the modern amenities in a house in 1958. They had an automatic garage door opener. Big. They had sliding doors. Huge. Believe me, wasn't 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 happening at that point. And they um 
had the the speakers outside, you know, to wow. the brand new. And they built a little basketball area for me in the back uh, off where the pool was. And, Gra- and these were split level houses in Truesdale. So Groucho's house was above ours. Okay. And all of a sudden, uh, my, my dad, uh, I look up and there's Groucho in a big straw Panama hat, his belly over his, his <laughs> uh, bathing trunks, looking down with me and saying, young man, young man, <laughs> please tell your father that not everyone is interested in what Vin Scully has to say. <laughs> the baseball game. It was 1958 that year, the same year the Dodgers came to LA. Oh wow! Exactly. Listen to Vin Scully. I love it. That's a great story. What was Hawthorne like for you? That was the elementary school you went to. Well, as you guys know, and I probably a lot of your listeners know that Beverly Hills was really divided, at that, or really formed by in in, in that, our generation. By the four elementary schools being theaters to the to the uh, high school, yes. And so Hawthorne uh, and El Rodeo, of course, were above Santa Monica Boulevard. Correct. And below were Beverly Vista and Horse Man. And so, oftentimes, your social fortunes once you got to high school was what side of the tracks did you live on? Were you yes. north mm-hmm. or were you south? Even though South had a lot of cohesion, you know, North had uh, daddy and mommy buying the, the kids the cars. Had a lot of money. And more, although I, I, it's an odd time that I went to, to uh, Beverly Hills High School, at least, where I started in the fall of 66 and graduated in 1970. Yeah. You know, in those years, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, you those were the hippie years. And so yeah. what you see is, is somebody who looked just like a normal kid sitting next to you in geometry. And then the next year he comes back in the summer and his head, his, his hair is, you know, shoulder length. And uh, and he's got, you know, t- a tie dye shirt and he's looking out like, oh. <laughs> and, uh, and so this was the hippie time. Yeah. Did it all become hippie? There was like there a percentage of kids or was it like a hippie click or was it the whole school influenced? Yeah, like we want to know. <laughs> uh, you know, there was still sports. There was still that. I mean, I think everybody, even those of us who were partying, uh, weren't mm-hmm. necessarily what when you think hippies, you think flower children. Right. Or yeah. people who really just let their freak flag fly and take, <laughs> take psychedelics before they come to school and things like that. So you had a percentage that. But my grade, you know, we were a little older, the class of 70, 71. Class of 72 to 74 to 76, Mm -hmm. that was more, they they were the drug, in my point, they were more druggy. Gotcha. They more grew up as as flower children, basically. You you grew up more conservatively. 1966, 67, well, it was a conservative, yes, it was Um, more, it was more, um, Traditional rather than conservative, I would say. Yeah, traditional. You know, the biggest uh, influencer, I think, in the culture of Beverly Hills uh, mm-hmm. in those years in terms of setting the social dynamic was my uh, friend, uh, my friends, Adam and David Lewis's uh, father and mother, uh, Harry and Marilyn, who had the Hamburger Hamlet. And in the Hamburger Hamlets, they only hired um, black waiters and waitresses. 
uh, through all oh, of them. Oh, we had no idea. California I had no idea. And gave them uh, employment opportunities. That's amazing. Wow. You know, and so that, you know, and, and of course, when the Watts riots happened in 1965, the slogan would be next time in Beverly Hills. So oh. we were all a little more sensitized about what we were and what we represented. Because when you're a kid, you're a little kind of oblivious. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, it, it, it really was, um, you know, the, the, the transformation of, of, of being a traditional to, to much more. So in that period of time, you wanted to be anti-materialistic. Right. So only very, even though I made that remark about the, uh, the fancy cars, I had a Chevy. Mm -hmm. You know, there were only a few, which was cool. I had a car. Yeah. I kind of needed to because we lived up in Truesdale to get all the way down to the high school every sure. morning. But at the same time, uh, you know, uh, that there were only very few people, only a handful of the, um, the always the most attractive uh, uh, girls from El Rodale, the, the most money school. <laughs> who had fancy cars, who had their Porsches and, and, and Mercedes and whatever. But we were very anti-materialistic at that time. And so it was yeah. a shock for a lot of us to know that what came after was the glitz and glamour and what you guys had of Rodale Drive. Oh, Rodale, for sure. Rodale Drive is where the hardware store was, the Luau, the, 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 the Uncle Bernie's toy menagerie with the lemonade tree. It right. wasn't about the, you know, the, 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 that, that changed, uh, later, uh, with, with, with Fred Heyman, really, and, and, and some of the other who brought in the, all the designers onto Rodeo Drive. Oh, high end fashion. Yeah. Probably like when Giorgio came in and all that and Bijan, right. well, and then it all started turning. That's, Giorgio was Fred Heyman. That, yeah, that, yeah. Exactly. That was, that was uh, Aaron Spelling's best friend. Did you even have a fear of getting drafted? Like, I mean, the yeah, a lot, a lot of your childhood, the Vietnam War was still going on. No question. And uh, interesting question you asked me, particularly because in the year that I the number came out, my birthday is January fourth. January third mm -hmm. was number one. January fifth was number nine. And I was number 339. So they're in the middle. So I wrote my draft board, and, and this is what I uh, wrote them. I said, dear Selective Service, since my number is 339 in this year's draft, you will never hear from me again. Good luck. Good luck with your war. And, and there were a few adjectives before that. And, uh -huh. uh, and said my name. So, so what we can deduce from that letter is that's when my FBI file must have started. Uh, right. <laughs> right. But yeah, we grew up with this. I, I, I mean, I'm a weird. I, you know, I was a kid, yeah. you know, and I was very politicized. Um, mm -hmm. I remember uh, being home. You know, you're up in the hills there, and it's summer, yeah. and the friends aren't around, and my mom doesn't want to drive me down. You know, I'm going to be home, and oh, poor me. You know, we had a pool, we had a nice, really nice house. And um, we, we, my friend Jeffrey White, who lived up the street, we would climb on the hills and traipse around all the time. It was very, right. almost, uh, you know, very, a lot of wildlife. Uh, I was say very rustic up there. Must have been very rustic back in the day. Yeah. It was so weird to, to see deer on your lawn and then look out and see the city behind it, you know. But um, mm -hmm. 
I, you know, I bring up the day in August 1962. I watched, uh, or 63, I can't remember. I think it was 63. I watched Martin Luther King's speech live. And I yeah. watched the Selma Bridge Crossing live when, when you know, the, the famous one with them. Um, uh, that really was uh, the icon. John uh, Lewis. John Lewis. John Lewis. Yeah. And, and uh, so, you know, you had that all, all around us. And, you know, there's a whole thesis about our generation and why our politics were the way it was. And it was a very interesting, it was actually a magazine uh, column for the New Yorker magazine called The Living Room War. And it was the only one, and, and my family was like that. We, we, my parents, my older sisters were already married and gone. And my right. mom and dad and I would watch, and my grandmother moved in with us. We would watch the Vietnam War every night on television with the Walter Cronkite news. We'd eat to the yeah. news. And, you know, there's a lot of our percent, the horror of war was seen. And, and you will know that the next time that the American uh, went to war in the first Gulf War, and even the second Gulf, everybody was always embedded. Reporters right. never had free reign after that. They had to, yeah. because the, the military learned from Vietnam, it was... No, we'll never have another televised war again. It's not a good look, you know? No. So, um, and in fact, to the point that, you know, that during the George W. Bush administration, in the Iraq war, you were, there was no, you were prohibited from uh, showing the uh, filming caskets coming out of the planes. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Different era, less for, you know, Matt. Um, I wanted to go back to one question you had, yes. uh, which was about, you know, what percentage of the school was, was that, you know, hippie and what percentage was straight. Very, yeah. very, it, it all comes down, my, my, my whole perception of, of, of an, an answer to that question was formed on, uh, uh, in, in 1967, it jazz night. Jazz night was a was a Beverly Hills tradition uh, that was stopped when I was a senior. But before then, we had real interesting people come. And subsequently, after uh, the one I'm going to describe, Linda Ronstadt came. Yeah. Um, uh, Three Dog Night. I mean, there were some interesting ones. But my freshman one was the most interesting because the featured act was The Doors. Ah, oh, you had The Doors. Legendary. And the Doors were brand new. You know, they had one album. And they get out there and they start playing their album in order. And the, the, the auditorium is packed. Completely. I don't know what the balcony. I remember it was a balcony. I don't know what was happening in the balcony. But the bottom part was packed. I, I, you yeah. know, very few seats. And they're playing, you know, right from their opening song is Break On Through to the Other Side. It goes wow. straight through to Light My Fire. Might fire ends and everybody assumes it's over. No, they had one other song called The End, which ah. the, the, the lyrics is, for those of your audience who don't know it, goes, this is the end, my only friend, the end. And in the middle of it, it gets really weird. And Jim Morrison gets even weirder and says, Father, I want to kill you. And all these certain, it just, you know, goes off. It veers off into strange things. And Half the people in the auditorium left before the song was through. Half stayed. And that defines the 60s. There you go. Wow. See, you might have been like the first guy to hear the end live. Uh, well, the first guy from Beverly High to ever hear it live, <laughs> maybe. I would be. Because <laughs> I stayed. As, I, as you would expect, I did stay. I didn't want. Of course you stayed. <laughs>
what was your personal experience in high school? What were you into? I really liked high school. We did too. But I was a big man in the middle school. You know, right. I, I, I grew, I, you know, I was uh, taller than a lot of kids at that point. So I played sports, um, got on all-star teams and things like that. Looking back at my life, I think I peaked at 14 for a lot of reasons. <laughs> Certainly having to do with girls. They were my, that was, and it was quite a shock when you're an eighth grader and you go to the high school and you're a freshman boy and those same girls don't even look at you when they walk by the hall, you know, very. Oh very my God. Famous. All the, all the freshman girls in my class started dating seniors. Oh, they yeah, go right exactly. to seniors. <laughs> and, and, and I remember when we were eighth grade, one of my girlfriends at the time said to me, you just wait next year, you'll be nothing. And, and uh, she was right. But at the same time, uh, she was one of the first ones who, who still talked to us all the time and liked us. Okay. And we hung out by the time we were seniors. And she remains um, one of my closest friends in life. And she married right, her great. childhood sweetheart, who also went to Beverly High. Well, during Beverly, were you interested in show business? Was that something that you were thinking about? No, I, I, I basically, I was in the drama department. But my reason to be in the drama department, pretty much, was to learn techniques to be a better litigator. Mm. Oh, so you wanted to be a lawyer. I was born to argue with people and, <laughs> and, and do it in a certain way. So that's what I always expected I would be doing. But so I, mm -hmm. but as I took drama, uh, sports, I, I played uh, <coughs> all three in my uh, freshman year, basketball, football, sea football, sea basketball, junior varsity baseball. Ooh. And um, I, I told you I was taller than most of my friends. Yeah. Yeah. Was, I was 5'8". <laughs> <laughs> like, like Brandon Walsh, I was elected vice president of the, my freshman class. Okay. And I, and I remember, you know, the, the two kids I ran against had older brothers and sisters, had older brothers. Right. And they both thought, everybody thought they were going to win. And there wasn't even a primary because I just <laughs> went to all the jocks and all the kids who smoke cigarettes in the alley and just said, hey, I'm running, vote for me. And, Perfect. And, and so I did that. And then I was president of my class in the spring of my junior year. Oh. And I was vice president of school in my, in my senior year. Of course, vice president of school in my senior year. That's great. And I still didn't get into Columbia. It, it still meant that. <laughs> but you went to Berkeley. <laughs> I did, no bears. Although I spent my freshman year at University of Wisconsin. Okay. I, I did, and which was a great experience to see what the other life is like and what it's like to live in cold weather and all of that. Was that an eye-opener, leaving Beverly Hills for Wisconsin? I have to tell you, it was so much an eye-opener because I was so, you know, um, settled in, in Beverly Hills and a known quantity in Beverly Hills and lots of friends in different grades in Beverly Hills. And you go to University of Wisconsin, and all these kids seemed to know each other. Right. And none of them would talk to me. And I kept thinking to myself, this is going to sound really vain, but no, don't you understand? I'm popular. You'll like me. <laughs> but they didn't know me. Right. My father did not want me to apply to Berkeley. So he lets me apply to Columbia and, and Madison, which Columbia was the hotbed of all radicalism in, in the 60s. So uh, wow. 
Uh, like and for, so was uh, Madison. Madison, yeah, they yeah. had a bombing, right? Not only did they have a bombing, the next day after the bombing, I showed up for my freshman orientation. Oh, my God. Wow. And <laughs> what, what were your parents thinking? <laughs> well, I was there with my sister and my brother-in-law, and they drove. They were living in Wisconsin at the time. They had met at University of Wisconsin, and, okay. and which one of the centers for me to apply there. I knew, you know, it was a fun good place people. and a good place to go. And they accepted me, so that you know, that's helpful. So we drive there to the to where the camp at the entrance off the freeway by the state capitol, and mm-hmm. it also happened to be the first day of hunting season. Mm. Uh-huh. So the red hunters in their red vests came out with their guns, rifles, and signs saying, "Out of state agitators go home." Oh, so flash forward. I've left Wisconsin. I'm starting Berkeley in the in in the spring quarter. I'm I'm uh, uh, driving up there uh, by myself to to go to the where my my friend said I could move in their house. And I get off the freeway. I start going up Ashby. I get to Telegraph. There's a big poster, uh, a, a billboard, I should say, that's not used. And in it, there somebody had scribbled or printed very clearly. L.A. plastic hippies go home. So oh. every place I went, they were telling me to leave. I mean, it was yeah. you know, in college day. <laughs> wow. Tell people about the bombing. I mean, I, I think I've seen a documentary about it. It was like a student radical group that bombed one of the buildings there, right? Yes, four people, uh, two, two brothers from Wisconsin and two guys out of state. And uh, some of them have already done jail time. And one of them has never been caught. Oh, where, wow. are, where are you, Buzzy Fine? Show wow. <laughs> but, but what was that, his name again? Buzzy what? Buzzy Fine. I don't know what his That's real amazing. first name was, but he was Buzzy. Yeah. yeah. And, That's amazing. And, yeah. So, we, you know, we had that. And I wanted to write a, a play about it, you know, about because, yeah. because I, I wanted to fictionalize it. The one researcher who was there at four in the morning that died in the building knew he was going to be blown up and he volunteered wow. to end the anti-war movement. Oh my gosh. The anti-war movement, when you read about it and you realize, oh, you know, all the colleges shut down in Cambodia, all of them, mm. every college shut down, including Wisconsin when I was there. Uh, I wasn't there yet. I was oh. still in high school. But, and I can tell you about that day, what it was like in Beverly High when, when 400 kids walked out of class. After the colleges, you know, were let out, the kids went home that summer and their parents went, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and, and people came back. There was the, the, the 60s were absolutely over. And every wow. I mean, it, it took time to unravel at this school more than this school, more than that school. But it pretty much was over. So why would you move to Berkeley? Why Berkeley as opposed to I, I got into UCLA. I did not want to go to UCLA. And as I as I told my dad at the time, he was a strong personality. I said, you know, I've already done all the things that one does in LA. Right. You know, I, yeah. I was, you know, I've I've been to the Troubadour often. I've been to the music center. I, I do know how to surf. I don't need I I've done it and I wanted something new. Right. Uh-huh. And I want to get thousands of miles away from you. You know, but that wasn't <laughs> That was the unsaid part of it, which we both knew <laughs> was the equation. So I told my parents, I want to move to New York and drive a cab and get life experience. Good. Or I could go to Berkeley. 
<laughs> Those were two good alternatives in your favor. They're like, wow, Berkeley's sounding a lot better. So Berkeley was accepted. <laughs> and my essay, uh, which I lorded over my three children, who are uh, ages now 36, 32, and 30, um, but then were, so whenever they were applying to their, their colleges, I always told them what my essay to college to Berkeley was, which was, California is my home state. Berkeley is my father's alma mater. I'll see you in the spring. <laughs> because I knew I had really good grades and I, I knew I was going to get in. I wouldn't have been such a, uh, but you can see even then, I, and, I, and I had to realize it at a certain point in, in thinking about when people would ask me uh, in, in interviews and media when I was doing 90210, well, how, when did you know you were a writer? And I went, well, yeah. maybe now, but I guess I was writing the whole time. And not yeah. really knowing it, you know. Did you give up on law while you were at Berkeley? Yes, I I, I had a wonderful experience at Berkeley. I, I got in um, to something called Cal in the Capitol, which was the summer interns in Washington, D.C. Mm. And I got in because uh, my father, one of my father's closest friends, son, was the legislative aide. And I knew him all the time growing up. He went to Berkeley as well, and he hired me to work in the office. And because of that, I got into the program. But there I was. I worked for Yvonne Brathwaite Burke, who was the longtime supervisor here uh, in in Los Angeles. At that point, she had just been elected to Congress um, after uh, being the, the chair of the convention that nominated George McGovern. She was oh. very – Yvonne – was a very attractive woman, had real nice sense, and um, and got the, and got elected. And this was her first term, and she was pregnant with her first and only child, who uh, oddly enough is now the assemblyman assemblywoman for where I live. Oh wow! Small world. Because Mrs. Burke was pregnant, she couldn't go to um, all of her committee may do the things she wanted to do. So in terms of there were two interns, there were three interns, but one was a washout. So there were two interns, really. And we divided up which committee we were going to go to. And I went to the interior committee representing her. And every morning I would see the oil lobby descend on the room because the topic was the Alaska pipeline. Right. And, And what I take away from that and tell people all the time is that the most ardent environmentalist in that group was the ranking Republican from upstate Michigan. The biggest proponent of the the, the pipeline was a Democrat from Columbus, Ohio, because of the labor unions. So what you had then was less doctrinaire, much more the mix, even though, of course, the Democratic Party was changing so greatly then because they had basically booted out the segregationists. And they had been moving away at that point and all became Republicans. Right. But this was kind of prior to that or what was happening. And, you know, just to show it was a much more, you know, bipartisan place. And then uh, in the afternoons, I would get on the little tram that they have that runs across under the Capitol, go from the House side to the Senate side, flash my little badge and go sit in the back and went to Senate Watergate almost every day, the Sam Irvin Committee with Howard Baker. So it was really fabulous. It was very exciting. And, wow. uh, and then when and then I was there an extra month after the, 
when, when, when the House and the Senate went out of session for their summer vacation, and I spent a lot of time in the beautiful Library of Congress researching things. When I came back and told my dad uh, that I, I didn't think I was going to want to go to law school, uh, he, he couldn't believe it. He said, why? And I said, well, because there's no adjectives in the law. You know, there was, yeah, not, yeah. there was not that creative kind of freedom. And nonetheless, I still was going to apply to law school. And I remember giving it to my professor. His name's David Littlejohn. And uh, he looked at it and he had a pained expression on his face. And he basically said, you know, you're, you, you can go to law. You'll be a very good lawyer. I'm sure of this. But, you know, you're really an exceptional writer. Wow. And no one had ever even said even anything like that to me before. Wow. And I had some really nice moments there. And uh, from that moment on in my senior year, I kind of was a writer star for both oh. the dare and Interstellar. So I knew I had the skill to write. And yeah. I was ready. I, what I wanted to do at that moment was to um, become a reporter. Just wow. go out and move to Stockton or Modesto, like most Berkeley grads. Sure. Find a small newspaper in Northern California and get your first jobs. And my dad begged me not to do it. Oh, he did. But when he asked me to do this, I went, he said, you know, you can get a master's degree, whatever writing or something doesn't work out, you can always teach. Exactly. I went, okay. And I moved across country. I went to Boston uh, University School of, mm. school yep. of um, Public Communications, it was called then. And the moment that I walked in the building a week before classes started in the morning, I realized I had made a terrible mistake. <laughs> Again, why did I leave my comfort zone to go to another place? It's like I had yeah. But so I went to the job board and they had a little three by five card saying that they had an opening for a reporter at the, the station upstairs. And so I thought I was going to walk in the the college station. And instead I walked in the newly created station for um, National Public Radio, WBUR, which was the jazz station. WGBH was the <laughs> classical station, and that came out of Harvard. This was BU's. And I, the guy said, well, do you know how to use this cassette machine? And I did write, write for the Daily Cal a little bit right. up at Berkeley and, and, and different things and, and, and had a great time in college, just like I did in, in high school. And I said to... Um, to the guy, of course, I know how to use this. And I didn't really, but I you know, <laughs> taped it up there. And where I was going was the first press conference a week before the Boston City Schools opened up. because, And this was the group that was against busing, forced busing, oh. which was the dominant issue of the time in Boston. Yeah. And they basically had a civil war in Boston for the two years I lived there. And the guy who was the uh, news director that morning, the main one wasn't there. He was the associate news director. He couldn't, he didn't want to go because he was Jamaican. And, wow. and he, he rightly said he would be jeered if he was there. So I went in and, uh, and did it, came back and admitted to Lonnie, who was the, the manager. I didn't really know how to cut it. So he taught me how to cut it. And we sent it down to Washington. We're going to air it here, but sent what I had done down to watch. And he says to me, why don't you go in there and record something, just a, you know, a wraparound to either end it, or do one to start it, or one to end it. And we did, we'll do both. We right. did. We sent it down to, I didn't think about it. About two hours later, he gets the call saying that they're going to use it on the, the broadcast that night. 
And the who called back was National Public Radio. And what it was, was the third national broadcast of all things considered. Because, you know, it was a big deal. Busting in Boston was a big deal. The definitive book to read about it is called Common Sense. Common Ground, excuse me. Common Ground was it called um, by J. Anthony Lucas. You know, was really excited that I was going to hear be on the radio. And I called my folks and said, I'm going to be on tonight. (laughs) And they went, well, where? I said, well, you know, whatever the public radio station is. It was KUSC. And my folks are in Truesdale. They couldn't pick it up. Yeah, right. There I was in my little apartment in Cambridge. I didn't know anybody. I'm listening to myself on the radio, and I am decidedly alone. Yeah. And realized if I become a journalist, remember, it's I'm just going to be lonely. It's a lonely life. I'm not with anyone in this. And it was one of many reasons why I ended up ultimately turning away from journalism. Mm. One of the main ones was the same thing that people don't like about journalists in the la- and have expressed so in the last 25 years or so is the, you know, the media as a group. And I found right. the media as a group, I-, I even found myself at times being a bully. Yep. If you don't give me this quote right now, I'm going to say this. So, you know, you better do it. And, you know, that kind of thing. The last thing I did for NPR was I covered the New Hampshire primary of 1976. What I was supposed to do was do a 90-second profile on all each Democratic candidate. And it had to be done by the New Year right. because they were going to start running it in January, the, the New Hampshire primaries in February. And, you know, I did this and I got to know the network reporters. And they all said to me the same thing. And I remember them. They were really nice guys. One, They'd all uh, have their first drink in the morning. They all, one was working on the second marriage, the other was working on his third marriage. This was correspondence for CBS and NBC. And uh, interestingly enough, the the only young person out there was was also a correspondent for ABC. And I tried really hard to buddy up to this guy. He never talked to me. Wow. Because I'd, I'd wear what you might expect someone to wear, as I did when I covered it in Boston. I'd wear a blue work shirt with a tie. Right. You know, yeah. because that was the uniform. Okay, I'll put on a tie for you, but the work shirt's for me. And, you know, it was more like a, a uniform at the time. And he would never talk to me. And uh, he was Brett Hume of Fox. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I would tell him, I ran into him, you know, as a young man, you were a real a hole. You know that, don't you? <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> okay, now it all makes sense. But, um, you know, I so I put this thing together, and, and I remember going to one function. And um, listening to a candidate and being really unimpressed. Mm. It's been like the stupidest thing saying after Watergate to say, you know, why not the best? Why not the best? Why don't you want the best? So this peanut farmer from Georgia. We know who that was. Yeah, exactly. And his people, Hamilton Jordan and Jody Powell, who especially Hamilton Jordan, took one look at me, didn't like me, and wouldn't let me talk to his candidate. So I rated the candidate really low. You know, he did like, you know, there were 11. I think I came, right. he played the third or fourth. And by the way, he took off in the month of January. My stuff was over in December. So mm. in terms of NPR, my political prognostication, I sucked. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, and at this time, interestingly enough, my dad, who you could see was a, was a powerful figure in my life. 
he would be sending me stories from the Wall Street Journal about what screenwriters in Hollywood are making. Because he also knew that I was very always interested in that. Okay. Uh, and in fact, when I graduated from Berkeley, before I went back to, to BU, I moved out of my big house with all, with all where my friends lived and was, a, you know, a party every night yeah. and moved into a little bungalow in the back of a house for the sole reason to see if I could stand writing six hours a day. Because if I didn't have the discipline to do that, how could I ever even think I'm going to be a writer? Right. Totally. More writers should do that. That's good advice. Yeah, that's actually great advice. Well, you have to be able to be by yourself. Yeah. If you're if you're going to be a serious writer, you you can't be worried about that. And in fact, in the years that I was a writer uh, in Hollywood, which let's see, would have been I got my for about 1977 through uh, 2007. Uh, with, with two years of not being successful in 2005, 2006. But I, I had a really full and good career. But I was a TV movie writer at the right. time. Mostly that's what I did. I grew two or three of those. I They get hired to do a pilot. And my pilot, my, my pilots, my original series never got made. But my mm. TV movies, I got in a big streak. And a lot of them did get made. How do you even get to that point where you were writing TV movies? First of all, there was much less... Uh, competition mm -hmm. uh, because it was just considered a ridiculous career, except if you were knew anything about it, kids didn't want to, didn't move from other places to come here to be writers. It wasn't aspirational. Yeah. Really not. And I remember at the time when my first year, second year in the business that the LA times did a big spread about a guy who was directing a feature for universal solely because he went to Harvard. And how weird is it to have a guy from Harvard be a director? You know, that that was really <laughs> yeah. how the, the, the mindset the was. Mindset. And, and at that time, if you were in television, you were in television. If you were in features, you were in features. Everybody right. wanted to be in features. Right. The golden age of features was the 1970s, right? For uh, sure. If you think about it, the early 70s, late 60s. But really, the 70s. Great time for cinema. Yeah, it really was. Where television was... Uh, you know, had BJ and the bear. And, and so, you know, most people didn't, you know, we're, we're thinking about television, but I write this script uh, based on a wonderful uh, article in the village voice called the fierce dreams of Jackie Watson, about a little boy who dealt pot in New York and a, and a woman who tries to help him. And it opened doors. I used that yeah. as a firebox. I ended up having to, after I finished the script, go back and, and have to get the rights to it. Unfortunately, mm. that, that agent in New York was very nice to me and, and allowed me to do it, giving some money to it after the, the other people not even wanted to talk to. But she was a very nice writer. I won't say her name because uh, she made up the whole story, it turned out. Oh. I learned that 11 years later when it became a television movie. We had to get the rights to the little kid, and the little kid didn't exist. But Wow. Well, that made the rights easier. <laughs> Fortunately for me... You will relate to this, people your age to this. Coach Newman's brother, Gary, was head of business affairs for NBC. And so when oh, I wow. told him what my problem was, he uh, was was nice. He, he figured out a way to get around it. He did That's not. That's great. In other words, he didn't kill the project because. Of it. That's great. So thank you, Gary. He was my coach. Yeah. Well, well, Jason was when I played high school, when I played ball, uh, 
I was the 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 originally in Pony League. I was the shortstop, and Jason was the second baseman. Really, By the time we got to high school. It switched. He was the shortstop, and I was the second baseman. Oh wow! So I had my calling card script, and when feature yeah. people read it, they said, uh, "Oh, this is really good," and and uh, you know, fine. So show us anything else you write. Yeah. Whereas the TV people who read it called me in uh, and said. Um, we have a rewrite that uh, do, and you got two weeks to write it. Are you available? Right. And so I had that job offer, and I had the job offer of becoming the first political editor of LA Weekly at the Ooh. same time, and chose oh, wow. went for the money, and that's I guess been uh, the truth ever since. Was it good money back then? You say screenwriting wasn't really on the radar, but. Not not to the same, but remember the dollar bought a lot more. Yeah, yeah. You know, you had a lot. And by being a news 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 guy, no, terrible. I, right. I was working at that point as a freelance for the California Apparel News, Women's Wear Daily, just as a business reporter. Uh, right. uh, you know, waiting for my career to happen because I knew I would get one. And my wife, oh yeah, when I moved back from Boston. I fell in love immediately. I fell Tell in us love. about Karen. <laughs> I fell in love immediately. She was this New York girl that I told her she. You have to say f every other word. You know, she was very New York, and and uh, very cute and uh, smart. And I and she, you know, there was a girl who was a little younger than me that I didn't feel I had to give a history lesson to. Right. You know, she, she knew who Eldridge Cleaver was. I didn't need to tell her. <laughs> and we were very close and she was funny and a good writer and she graduated, you know, Phi Beta Kappa. And I, I missed that, you know, plateau. <laughs> and she uh, went to graduate school in playwriting where oddly enough, um, her writing partner was a fellow named Rob Sternen, who became the, who created the nanny and who's the boss and a lot of other things. And wow. But she left to go to law school. Oh, her plan was I will become an entertainment attorney and that will get me to become a producer. And meanwhile, I'll let my husband struggle with his career and I'll be in a position to support us. Wow. Because she knew, because her father was a, uh, a, a at one point, a very successful uh, writer for radio and television variety th uh, shows uh, like Perry Como and Andy Williams and all these other, and, and really good ones from radio, Fred Allen and the Goodman Aces. And she, 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 he was at prominent, but at a certain point, you know, you can, it runs out, you know, it, yeah. it, they, you, they, you're a victim of ageism or whatever. And, uh -huh. and had years where he struggled. So she knew that's what right happened to writers. So that's what yeah. she was fully expecting. So she started law school in 78 and uh, in the fall of 78. And that's uh, when Jackie Watson gets optioned. I take my first job in 79 and I worked straight through to 1999. Wow. So you didn't have to support us. You married the perfect girl. <laughs> <laughs> you did. So later on in the, right before our first daughter was born in the mid eighties, right around, what, what year did you graduate? We're 84. In 1984, in fact, right? My daughter was born in January of 85. We get, the Los Angeles Magazine was a much bigger deal then. And, yeah. it, and it had the 25 best marriages in uh, Los Angeles. And we were ranked 25th. Oh. That's so cool. Yeah. How do you get yeah. nominated for that even? That's, hey, how do you get? <laughs> well, it's, 
Well, we well we knew the person who wrote it, and as I always, <laughs> okay. and my stock answer to the question you just asked was, yeah. well, when you do a three way with the writer, it's not so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Looking at uh, all your credits, it looks like Saint Elsewhere was another break for you. Is that the case? Well, yes, and the fact that I I got to work for really some top tier people, uh, yeah. In Josh Brand and in in John in the late John Falsey, Josh has remained a friend all these years. Josh is brilliant. Both those guys got lifetime achievement awards, and um, I, you know they the the interesting thing. Well, the important thing about saying elsewhere is that we worked together. We did another show together, and I think yeah, those are the only two we did together until Northern Exposure. So because uh-huh. we had a history, because we had the same agent, uh, mm-hmm. I was available to get on that show. And then you switch from just writing to doing more to doing some producing on Northern Exposure. Is that right? Well, I had the title as head writer. I was the head writer, and that's the title they gave you at that point, supervising producer. There were only, there was okay. no money to make the show. Mm. It's a brilliant show. One of my all-time favorite shows. One of David's favorites. Well, right out of the mind of Josh Brand. Uh, and it was always fun to hear him talk about it and the characters and act stuff out. And, and um, But the thing that was funny, we, we had an offices at Universal. We were a non-union show. We had no mm-hmm. money for the show. So if you know in the beginning, it starts about what the town, the, the population of Sicily lacks. That's yeah. the license fee. That's how much money they gave us, which is, <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of dollars less than other shows were making, but we were summer show, so they, uh-huh. it was okay for them to do it that way. But it did become a big hit show. Well, what happened was we were at Universal and we had these producer offices where their offices were, and they put me in the middle, and they were on either side. So we'd have them, and they could come through to my side into my office without going around and coming through. Right. So uh, more than once we would have a meeting. They would leave. We'd all be in our places. And then John would come in and Josh would come in 10 minutes later and all say the same thing. Don't listen to John. John doesn't. Don't listen to John. And that's how they kind of hammered it out. And whoever yelled loudest, I guess, got it. I don't know exactly always what their dynamic was. They definitely had different tastes. Uh, yeah. and, and and I was more aligned with Josh. And mm-hmm. uh I usually get people to who are big fans of the show to go gaga because I wrote the Aurora Borealis. So that's the the wow. episode where you met um, Adam and the first time and you met that the DJ had a black brother and all that was that was mine. Oh, that's all great stuff. <laughs> so so anyway, and, and that was my only Emmy nomination. And, you know, wow. well so, deserved. Yeah. Who beat you? You deserve that Emmy. Who won that? Yeah. Uh, LA Law, I think, probably. Uh, nothing. Yeah, we want to give it. To, we want to give it to you. Yeah. Well, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, it was funny because that course happened. I left Northern to go to nine hundred two and zero. Yeah. Now, so Northern doesn't have enough money to have me stay there. They have me write scripts and do what I can, but we didn't even get through. We were, it was the order for eight scripts, and the money was running out. I would have only got through seven, but about six. There's an inquiry about, am I available to do a show for Aaron Spelling? And I um, said, uh, well, I'll, I'll look at it for sure. And mm-hmm. I'm on a deadline trying to get my a, a script done for, for Northern. 
and I'm watching the pilot. It's a two-hour version. What what ultimately aired as the pilot of 90210 was a heavily ed- edited 90-minute version, and okay. with some new scenes put in and everything. But the version I saw was um, had a lot to be desired, <laughs> and I fell asleep in it. Oh, okay. And when I wake up, I have two choices: to keep watching. Or to uh, go finish the work that I'm being paid to do for Northern Exposure. And I go in there and that's what I do. Yeah. And so I tell my agent the next day that I pass. Okay. And he calls me back and says, would you, Mr. Spelling is not going to accept your pass. Would you go in and meet him? And I, he was a legend. And I've always been, and I would always give this advice to anybody Take the meeting. If there's an yes. interesting person to meet, meet the person. You know, sure. because yes. not. And the other incentive, truthfully, was as my agent pointed out, and it's his job to point out, that per episode, they were going to pay me six times what I was making on Northern Exposure. Well, so that's, that's a good incentive. I'll meet this guy. Sure. And, and we go to meet Aaron Spelling and um he explained what he wanted to do with the series. And Aaron was really, really cagey, really smart. And this was a year that they had a lot of other teen shows coming out. There was mm-hmm. gonna, the biggest one being Ferris Bueller's Day right. Off. There was going to be um, uh, Parker Lewis Can't Lose for, for Fox, the new, the new station. Um, yeah. There was going to be um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And Disney had one, too. We were the fifth one. Spelling was always the last one. Rich Kids in Beverly Hills sounded terrible. Right. Now, let's just make something clear. Why did they call me in? They knew you were from Beverly Hills. I went to Beverly Hills High School. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was available, and no one else wanted to do it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> the pilot wasn't that great. Aaron, by that point, his 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 uh, eras were over in the seventies, right. seventies and eighties, and so um, you know what was what was going to be uh, you know, to do something like that. But he realized that the only way he could compete was to deal with social issues. Okay. And I wrote dramas for for I didn't write comedies for movies the week. I wrote social dramas, often with women and kids. Exactly. And so, and because my first series, my first two series were, and don't believe what you read on IMDb, by the way, because <laughs> I, it is so screwed up, I don't even try to correct them anymore. But my first two series were The White Shadow and Breaking oh. Away. White Shadow, my all-time favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I met John Falsey doing The White Shadow. Wow. Oh. I, that's absolutely my all-time favorite. Well, anyway... Um, so I had worked, you know, teenagers, and uh, I decided to, uh, you know, take the job. Yeah. Good choice. With the understanding that all I wanted to do, there was an order for 12 episodes, and now yeah. all I wanted to do was get through the 12 episodes without being fired. Okay. Because nobody expected this show to last more than 12 episodes. Huh. Now, why did that benefit me and my family? And my because because they couldn't get anybody to be there and they needed someone. They needed to finish it all. No one expected the show would survive. Right. So when my agent and lawyer started making outrageous demands. 
Yeah. Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> and so I got a kind of deal that Stephen Bochco would have got. Wow. Congrats. A year and a half later, when Mr. Spelling uh, realized what they had given me, he fired the head of business affairs, changed his whole private company. You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> we squeezed six and a half years of television in five years. Right. Five seasons. It was a real burnout. And uh, actually, my artery uh, closed down uh, five weeks after I left the show. I was 43 years old. Oh, God. It was was high stress. You know, we we worked 50 weeks a year, 16 and a half hours a day, six and a half days a week. You know, uh, and I used to come to work on Monday mornings. I always remember, I would say, the nicest person. We had a lot of really great cast members and different people and yeah but you know really one that remains a, a friend of ours is Gabrielle Carteris and Gabby mm-hmm. would always say how was your weekend and I always say was it a weekend right you know, it didn't make <laughs> yeah. a bit of difference you know I, the only difference was the phone wouldn't ring I could get more writing done we exactly. had a very small staff and my wife and Karen wrote fortunately came on there with me so right we were together and she wrote or co-wrote our most memorable episodes, our most memorable dramas, many of them anyway. That's great. And, wow. um, you know, what ended up happening after that, much to my chagrin, was that in the eyes of the industry, oh, yeah, he writes teenagers and mainstream. And then that's not kind of who I really was. I was much no, more, not at all. more there into the TV movies. And Mr. Mm-hmm. Stone was very mad that I left the show. And he never mm-hmm. really forgave me for it. And wasn't that nice to me after I left. And, and oh. uh, That'll always be a, a sadness on my part. Yes, yeah, huh. so unfortunate to end that way. What about Darren Starr? What about Darren Starr? He's always say he's the creator, but it sounds more like an Aaron Spelling project. He was a young writer. He wasn't mm-hmm. happy that Aaron brought a young guy in to run a TV show, although I never had done it before. We mm-hmm. had a lot of conflict in those first 12 episodes. Yeah. And then it became clear to us, look, if we want to do more we got to figure a way to, to um, work together better. Yeah. Darren is and always was very ambitious. Yeah. We did work together, but when he realized he wasn't, he, he wasn't going to get everything that he wanted from uh, 902.0, really after Rolling Stone magazine made us the cover story, and uh-huh. a lot of the story, more of the story was given to me than probably should have, but right. I didn't tell the writer what to write. And so Darren went on to do Melrose and he went on to do other yeah. shows. And, yeah. and eventually, you know, uh, Darren uh, was all the, uh, you know, the secretaries, you know, they all liked him. He was very cool. He was very, they all wanted to go out with him, but he was closeted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So once he came out of the closet years later, Esquire wrote about it. And I and I got back in touch with him and told him I was proud of him and all of that. Oh, good. And we became friends. I actually worked for him on a show. I wish I could work for more of his shows. But Darren has done really well, and I always yeah. wish him the best and consider him a friend. And, and oh, I know good. he And vice versa. I know that. The one thing about Darren is, is yeah. that I told you the pilot wasn't very good. Well, he was doing it on the fly. And then Darren turns in his first script first two scripts to us uh, that we're doing a nine or two and oh, even it was part of the first 12 and they were great. And when, and you know, like you're really a terrific writer, but by that yeah. point, the damage had been done. He knew that I didn't like his pilot. 
and we, mm. but we learned to live, you know, you were young, you have, you, you fight in this and you, um, you know, you, you, you learn how to, what, what's important in life and what, what, you know, what really has to do. And when you do a show, you know, it's got to be about the show. It's got to be exactly. about the show and you got to park your ego. When we used to do television movies, in the beginning, we'd get, let's say, 20, 21 shooting days and went down to 16 by the end. But you get those days and, you know, you would just have to say to the crews and the actors and everybody, come on, we're only here for three weeks. Right. You know, suck it up. We'll get through this. But when you're working like we did and mm-hmm. and we were out in the valley in warehouses, quite removed from everywhere, the cast got very close. The crew got very close. And it was, uh, you know, we, we, we were like a family. That's so at, good. At, at times dysfunctional. Yeah, but, as any family. It certainly had a big impact on every anybody who was ever from Beverly Hills because I started exactly. getting the question, hey, are you from East Beverly or West Beverly High? Funny. How did that even come up, the East oh, Beverly? Yeah. Or Beverly? Wait, Do you know why we did? Why West yeah. Beverly? In the why? Oh, okay. Well... Barry Diller, you know who that name is, right? Barry yeah. Diller was, and he was the president of Fox. This was before IAC. He, he brilliant, difficult man, and he went to Beverly High and had a great affinity mm-hmm. to it. So he, when he became head of 20th Century Fox Television, or or, or the excuse me, the Fox Broadcasting Channel, yeah, he had licensed Beverly Hills High School. There oh. things because he wanted to, you know, have it and use it, and he didn't quite know what. He then hires Darren Starr to write a series called "The Class of Beverly Hills." It wasn't called "Nine O Two and And by the way, he hires him, and then at the same week, cancels the contract he has with Beverly Hills School District. The Beverly Hills School District sues him. Oh. <laughs> And, wow. and by the way, spelling is not in party to the suit. And neither really is Darren Stark. Not his fault. He didn't know about this. So right. one of the things the lawyers told us we had to do was differentiate that there was Beverly and West Beverly. We had to, that we were talking about West Beverly. And I remember the kids at Beverly High were so ready to fight with me. Uh, did you write from a lot of your own experience? Did a lot of your own experience make it into the show? Yes. Oh, good. Very cool. What's a stellar example of that? Well, if you remember, there's one episode in the third season where, and it becomes a whole plot point for the senior year, uh, where uh, Steve Sanders is often a main key to open up the whole school. Mm, right. I called it the legacy key. Oh, yeah. that key was offered to me in my junior year, and I was too chicken to take it. I didn't know what I would do. Do that? I didn't know what I would do with it. Right. That was the legend while I was in school that there was one master key. There was one master key. I saw it. It's <laughs> held out for me. It was originally stolen by an English teacher's son. Wow. And his second son was the one who offered it to me, so that mm-hmm. when I put the episode on, out of the blue. This person who had become a dentist in L.A. calls me and says, how can you put that on there? I said, look, I can use your name. Nobody knows what it is. Just relax. Right. Um, chill. So that was there. A lot was, of course. I mean, That's you know, great. every element of it uh, in the high school years. And we also took a lot of um, 
stuff that was, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the names. I mean, the, the dance was always the pigskin prom. Yeah. And hello day. You know, all the things that we had a senior poll and ditch day and the graduations. So the institutions came. And sure. yeah. in my second year, I cast John Engel to play in the, my own drama teacher. Got yeah. A character on the show for one episode. I fully remember. I love that. That's so great. That he was on. That's that must have been a big thrill for you. It was. He was. We liked John. I was in the plays when I was a senior. The two of them. So I have to ask if you were hanging out at the Spelling Mansion a lot during your years there. No. <laughs> Never made it through the door. Oh, more than one, of course, but not a lot. I. I uh, I tell the story that the first time I went there to the house and he had just, we started the show. He hadn't lived there yet. And they moved in. And um, this was the episode, the time when we were learning that we were going to be doing summer episodes and getting no vacation and what the network had in mind, a big risk by Barry Diller, but one that certainly put us on the map and was a very smart thing to do. Yeah. Our ratings and popularity grew. So, uh, I got there early and Mr. Spelling is there and his partner, E. Duke Vincent. And I get in and it's all, it's, and, and by the way, it was a beautifully done house. It was so well appointed, even if it was big and this, it was, you, you felt you were in a chateau. It was, it was great. Oh. Well, for people who don't know, he built and lived in the largest house Beverly Hills has ever seen, I think. Like 50,000 <laughs> square feet or something? It was at the time. It's been eclipsed a few times, but yes, it was that. It was expensive. They kind of didn't have a fancy pool. Mm-hmm. Mr. Spelling didn't travel. Right. Uh, so he really wanted the big house and, and, and that. And, and he also grew up poor. So, of course, it was a little grander than, than you might expect. 150 bedrooms or something. <laughs> when I walk into this room, uh, you know, to be knowing our meeting is coming. And I sit down in a chair and it's an antique and I break it. Oh, <laughs> Oh, and the entire meeting was more about how are we going to tell Candy that the chair is broken. That's what we were going to say. So you did so much work after nine hundred two one one. Oh yeah, after nine hundred two one zero. What were some of your favorite projects? I I don't think we can go through them all. There's too many. <laughs> what were some of my favorite projects after that? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I did a show nobody watched in uh, for Showtime called Leap Years, and I got to spend a year producing television in Canada, in Toronto. Uh That was a nice experience. I did a lot of different shows in Hawaii, and I'm kind of a certain guy, so that was fun to be there. That's nice. But nothing was like 90210. And and in fact, you know, as I say, I I, I was always surprised that I didn't get offered to do run better shows as a showrunner. I just didn't get the offer. And then found out... uh, that I didn't have a fan in Aaron Spelling. So when anyone would call, mm-hmm. I wouldn't really be praised uh, as, as much. I saw 90210 as a little bit of an albatross. I, I you know, it was, thank you for, we, you know, we made a lot of money here, but certainly yeah. the kind of projects that I wanted to do, um, HBO wasn't considered the writer from 90210. It just, yeah. there, was, there was a snobbery at that point. There wasn't, you know, the, the, you know, television was the junior stepchild of the feature business. And it's almost the same as being an actor on one of those shows that you get typecast. Ian had a hard time for a long time getting cast after the show. You yeah. know, yeah. But, but I did realize, and listen, this is the truth, you know, that when we did our graduation episode, our commencement episode, 
Mm-hmm. And I walked out and, you know, and it was the, the moment it ended, Fox News is showing all these fans having parties and all over the city and this. And I, we had a dog and I'm walking my dog and that night. And I think to myself, this is the high watermark. It'll never be better than this. And it never was better than yeah. Did the New York and East Coast audience really get 90210 to the next level? Is that the, the fans of the East Coast or was it all California people? Like Fox at that time was a broadcast service and they basically had very few top channels they owned. They, the ones that they got, they bought Metromedia, which in our mm-hmm. town is Channel 11 and New York had Channel 11. They had a station, owned a station in Miami Beach. They own a station in the Bay Area, in Oakland, and I and one other because yeah, then he only had five, I think maybe Philadelphia. Maybe it was one other place they had a thing. So our ratings were really suffering, and uh, it was and only because we were doing good shows they didn't cast us, and only because they didn't have another thing to put on they didn't cast us. Fox gotcha. was brand new and and didn't have a as as, as deep a pocket as you might expect, and. Right. Uh, what ended up happening was the Gulf War mm-hmm. and the American television stations at that time, the network, CBS, NBC, ABC, immediately suspended their programming and advertising and Nielsen suspended getting ratings. And this went mm-hmm. on. And But Fox, hard to believe, didn't have a news company then. And hard to believe. So, we might have been better off then. Oh, damn good, old good old days. Good old days. They don't have anything to show, so they show our episodes, and there's some of our really better episodes. And yeah. so, you know, the war ends, normal activity resumes, and yeah. all of a sudden, we have 450,000 new people watching our show that next week. And after wow. that, 450,000 more watching the next week. And that's about the time that I was in my prayers would say, you know, God bless the children in New York City. They're yeah. the ones who made our show a hit. Not even L.A. kids. But L.A. Wow. was right wow. there. And by the end, once we really became big in L.A., we would always be in the top 10 here in L.A. The, the LA For Times. sure. Fox wasn't even, they were growing their market. Right. And the L.A. Times never uh, had nice things to say about us, largely mm, because right. we were produced by Aaron Spelling. Uh, mm. and, and it was, you know, I could just, it just, it went on and on and on. Uh, yeah. We didn't really have a hometown newspaper. So now you do a podcast about 90210. True, the Beverly Hills 90210 show with Pete Ferrario and my friend Larry Mullen. Yeah, so Larry was a writer on 90210 with you, is that correct? And and prior. I hired, I hired Larry to come on in the fourth season because okay. I, I, I felt we needed help in doing guy humor. It was not okay. my strength and, you know, and, 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 and Larry had some stuff. And, and he came on and he's lifelong, my, my close, close friend for life and doesn't live far from me, lives in the Marina Del Rey. I'm down here in you know, Venice. So when we see you on the podcast, you're not too far away from Larry. <laughs> yeah. So Pete wanted to do this, this podcast. And I had started that summer. I had been writing and getting ready to kind of get ready to publish a book, a memoir about okay. it. Because the cast had launched a reboot in which they played themselves. It was for Fox. It was just called BH90210 or something. It, uh, it was just different than our show. But all yeah. of them were there. Corey and Jenny and Jason, 
Luke, unfortunately, had passed by that point, but Shannon even went on and did it. And right. uh, and we and we loved it, Karen, my, uh, myself, because we knew all the the in joke references uh, right. mm-hmm. that they would give, and and also that we um and and it, it started out with really good ratings, and so we expected there to be the show um, to yeah. get a second season, and it didn't. It got canceled. Uh, ratings dropped, and there was some other tussles. I'm I'm told. So I had had it with nine hundred two and zero. Yeah, <laughs> and you, you have to realize that I didn't that I come from a place that I didn't realize why anybody liked it or watched it or what it was there for. It, it, it's, it was so removed from everything yeah. else that I didn't really realize the kind of impact that it had on, on a wide swath of people. And neither did it. Huge. But here's, yeah, definitely. But, here's, but here's Pete, you know, he calls me up and he wants me to do this podcast with me. And I say, no. Do you know Pete or is he a super fan or like, do you know him? Blind, blind call. Okay. Just, just blind call and, and, or email. He wants to do it. And I say, no, he, it was an email. And I went, no, I want to, I want to write, uh, you know, I'm going to save my stories for the book. Yeah. Most, most of which I just told you. So you put in your book. <laughs> but anyway, you know, he, he then calls back two weeks later and asks me to do it again. And I say, uh-huh. no, he calls a third time to do it again. Yep. But the difference is, is he says, I want to talk to you about the episode you did with the Rolling Stones. And I said, oh. that one I'll talk about. If, <laughs> if, if we can talk about also all the Rolling Stones concerts I saw in my life. Okay, good. <laughs> all interesting ones and different times and that. And uh, we did that and it was fun. And, and he says, let's do another one. You know, you know, what about, and I he said, let's do it. And I said, well, my bring on my friend, Larry Mullen, and we can ask questions or we'll talk about music, whatever it was. Yeah. What, yeah. And, and we had a good time. And then pandemic came and we right. were all inside and it was like, well, let's start this. And it made not only did the show have a lot of impact on people who watched it at the time uh, and, and, and was having a lot of personal struggles that, themselves. Yeah a lot of these people, but at the same yeah. time, the podcast also helped people really get through the, the isolation and trauma of being alone. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. And it's fun to reminisce about, you know, for the fans, I'm sure of 90210 and to have this interactive conversation with you guys. It's a great show, you know, especially for the fans. We have a lot of fun. And then after we do one, we often have what we call the after party for people who pay to be in the Patreon come up and gotcha. you know, we just kind of shoot the shit. They're supposed to ask us questions, but we don't yeah. want to do that. Well, it's, and, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been good and we're still doing it. And I'm, I'm like, are we running out of episodes yet? Or Right. <laughs> but uh, we get people to come on and it, 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 it's been a good thing. Yeah. So. And you've had a lot of the cast on, you've had Tori on and we've There's had, all, Jake, we've all, had of all of them, but, but Shannon. Yeah. All of them. Except Shannon. But yeah, no, it's a really fun show. And I, I really, I enjoyed it. So it was good to get oh, turned on to it. So it's fun. Well, the yeah. real thing, our big one was our 30th. Uh, on, on October 4th, 2020 was our 30th anniversary. Right. So we had everybody on. Oh, wow. Starting with Darren Starr, with this, it went on for three hours. We had all this, and we ended up getting rated, ranked by... Uh, NBC, the Today Show, as the fifth best podcast of pop culture. That's amazing. Larry and I and Pete felt good about that. And we have a a good time. We talked 
at this point, we're talking almost as much baseball as we are television, but that's okay. yeah, a little mix. it's a little bit of a mix. So, do you guys do that once a week, or how often you guys hop on? Pretty much once a week. I mean, this yeah. week we actually is putting on a repeat or a different one, but yeah. And sometimes Larry stayed on the show after I left and produced right. season six and seven. So, right. with the topics or episodes having to do with that, I don't go on those episodes. Yeah. Good. I have That's... no more bandwidth for anything 90210. I've got it. We can understand. <laughs> <laughs> I get you. <laughs> Charles, this was incredible talking to you. Well, and good. you, what a life. I, I like love what you, your journey. And it was just so incredible from your childhood till now and staying so relevant, doing cool things and literally producing and writing one of the greatest shows of uh, our generation, 90210. Well, thank you. It was a lot of, lot of fun, and you're just incredible. It's an honor talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Very good. And, and now let's sing what, the Beverly Hills High School alma mater? I don't even know how, what was it? Oh, oh Beverly, we love you. Oh, Beverly, we love you, and loyal policeman. That's it. Okay. <laughs> Beverly, we love I, you. I can't sing. You can sing. You you should you could sing it. <laughs> you could sing us out. <laughs> well, anyway, really nice to meet you both. And, you too um, was wonderful. And thank uh, you. I, uh, yeah. Bye, Charles. It was so Bye. great to meet you. And thank you, you, thank Chuck, you, and thank you. Oh, Chuck. Like we love Chuck. We love Chuck. Come by if you're ever in Venice. Come on by. We will. We will. It's time for the Beverly Hills breakdown. Oh, yeah. The Beverly Hills Breakdown. Let's do it, David. What do you got today? Well, we have a pretty political breakdown. It's not our usual. We have to talk some politics here. You know, I don't mind that, David. I'm good with that. Let's do it. Uh, One thing that I wasn't too familiar, I mean, I knew about, but I really didn't know how it worked, was that I knew there was a, a lottery for the draft for Vietnam. So, But the way they did it was... They pick a number, and that number was to see if what day you were born on, when you would be drafted. So, for instance, the very first day picked was September 14th, and that was number one. So if your birthday happened to be on September 14th and you were of eligible age to enter the Army, you would be drafted immediately. Oh, wow. And so Chuck was saying he was 339, so... I think he was at the very end of it, so he felt like he probably would not get drafted. All right. Well, it worked out in uh, Chuck's favor, looks that way. He did not get drafted. He did not. Then he was at Madison during this bombing, and I had seen this great movie about it, and I kind of remembered some of the details, but they were a little sketchy. This documentary is called The War at Home, Mm. and that's a really good documentary. And this bombing was at Sterling Hall, which was a building on campus that housed a military think tank. So four people were involved, and it happened on August 24th, 1970. And one person died, and three people got injured. Wow. And Chuck was at school during that time. He was there. He showed up the day after for to start school. That must have been a crazy, crazy time. Oh, wow. Must have been. He said Buzzy Fine was never caught, but Buzzy actually was caught, according to what I found. And he got seven years in prison and served three of those. Oh, and Buzzy's real name was David. Oh, man. So (laughs) David actually went down. Buzzy. 
Buzzy, buzzy. He brought up Eldridge Cleaver. He liked the fact that his uh, wife knew who Eldridge Cleaver was. And I was thinking, hmm, do I know who Eldridge Cleaver is? I had to look it up myself. (laughs) (laughs) He was the leader of the Black Panthers. Sure was. Let's all feel a little better about ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) That we, we can definitely say we know who he was. I think you looked up Yvonne Burke. I did. And she was a uh, political lawyer from California, the first African-American to represent the West Coast in like from 1973 to 79. One of the first women in Congress to ever take maternity leave. What do you think about that? I think she did a lot of groundbreaking stuff and what a cool woman to be associated with for Charles. Certainly, certainly. Then we got to the story of East and West Beverly, but I wanted to make it clear to everybody who didn't go to Beverly, there's only one Beverly. (laughs) There's only one, Beverly Hills High School, one and only. Stacey, tell us about the Spelling Mansion. That's an awfully big house. Well, first of all, the Spelling Mansion is insane. And first of all, it's not even in Beverly Hills. It's in Holmby Hills, and they called it the Manor. It was uh, the piece of property is actually six acres and it only cost $12 million for them to build in 1988. It's about 56,000 square feet with 14 bedrooms and 27 bathrooms. Not too shabby. That sounds so weird. Like the ratio from bedrooms to bathrooms. Why would you need 14 bedrooms and 27 bathrooms? That's like two bathrooms for every person. You know, David, like when you walk in the main entry, you need a guest room for the men and a guest room for the bathroom for the women. And then you might be walking down the hall and need to pee, got to stop somewhere and go to the bathroom. So you do need a bathroom much more than a place to rest. Maybe it's so big that you get (laughs) lost in the maze and you're like, oh, thank God there's an extra bathroom here too. David, it's so big. There's a pool, tennis court, a wrapping room. She had a beauty salon, movie theaters. The master suite was 7,000 square feet. But the kicker is the spelling sold it for 85 million in, you know, and then it just recently sold in 2019 uh, for $120 million. So quite a house. Quite a house. And then Chuck grew up in the Truesdale Estates. Which is super cool. Truesdale Estates was actually really fun when I looked into that one. It was originally owned by the Doheny family. And then in the 50s, Paul Truesdale bought the land, about 410 acres. And they originally built, um, there was really about 500 houses there. And the houses started getting built in the late 50s, early 60s. A lot of them were mid-century homes built by famous architects like Wallace Neff. Paul Williams, Frank Lloyd Wright. And it was quite an incredible, credible place. Hard to get to because it really is in the hills. So for kids growing up there, especially when Chuck was there, you really needed a car to get up and down to the flats of Beverly Hills. Very cool place to live. I actually partied up there a lot during high school in the 80s. Oh, well, that's something that a lot of people might not realize about Beverly Hills is that the main part of Beverly Hills is flat. Right. But all of L.A. is surrounded by mountains. So if you go up in the mountains, there's all these little communities where you do have wildlife and you feel like you're right out of the city and right into nature. Yeah, because there's literally like cougars and wildlife up there. So it's really, really a fun, fun, fun area. Um, And thank you to Paul Truesdale for making that happen and incorporated that into Beverly Hills. 
He told us a really cool fact about the hamburger hamlet that I wasn't aware of. Totally. But what was the fact? (laughs) (laughs) He was saying that Harry and Marilyn Lewis, who owned the hamlets, uh, hired African-Americans to do all these jobs when they were struggling to find jobs in L.A. That's really true. And I think it's really cool that the Lewises brought diversity to their restaurants and especially to Beverly Hills during, you know, the 50s and 60s. Pretty amazing. Thank you, Hamburger Hamlets. And thank you, Hamburger Hamlet, for bringing the upscale burger to L.A. (laughs) Yeah, I never liked their hamburger one bit. You didn't? No, I would rather. (laughs) I mean, as a kid, I think you'd rather have a McDonald's hamburger. Well, you know me, McDonald's every day, all the time. (laughs) I don't eat any of that anymore. Neither do you. Neither do I anymore. Well, I do go to McDonald's for iced teas quite often. Okay. All right, back to the breakdown. (laughs) All right. He talked about the what he calls the legacy key, which was a master key that would open the entire high school. Yeah, do tell about that a little bit more. That's like always something you think about. Like I even think about like it don't, even on like the Brady Bunch, or you always need the master key to something. I kind of forgot about it, but then I remembered after that a friend of mine who's younger had the master key. Really? And he actually would break into the school all the time, but did not get in trouble for it until he took the key, got into the school's computer system, and changed all his grades. Oh, do I remember hearing that story growing up? Well, he got caught. Yeah. And he got kicked out of school, got kicked out of the high school, and went to continuation, which was like some adjunct for kids who got kicked out of Beverly. And then he later went to Berkeley, just like our own Charles Rosen. Wow, it's a real full circle because Chuck almost had the key. Your friend had the key and they both went to Berkeley and Beverly. Yeah, we talked about Jason Newman. He came up and he was my PE teacher and another guy who went on to teach at Beverly. He was a coach at my elementary school and then transitioned to the high school with me. Well, a.k.a. known as Coach Newman. Yes. (laughs) That kind of wraps us up. Yeah, I think that's it, Stacey. Till next time. Until next time, thanks again to Chuck. We had a lot of fun. We learned a lot today, David. And keep on listening, keep on liking us, keep on following us, and you know what to do. Yep, follow, like, Instagram and Facebook. Later. Talk to you later. Good to see you on Growing Up Beverly Hills. So suicide has personally affected my life, and we like to mention at the end of our show that there is help for everybody out there. You know, I think everybody's going through a tough time now, and we don't want anybody to take their lives. Especially during this COVID situation, uh, we've all been experiencing depression and hard times. Things can always get better. Everything bad now can get better. Everything can get better, and there is a lot of help out there, so please reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. There is always help. It doesn't hurt to call, so do that. You don't have to do this alone. There's always help.